The following audio is from Jacob's Well Church. For more information about Jacob's Well Church, please visit www.jacobswellgb.org. We're going to jump right in this morning. If you would, please open it to Exodus chapter 20. It's page 61 in the Red Bible, page 98 in the Children's Bible. Today we are continuing our series in the Ten Commandments, and we come to the Seventh Commandment today. And I want to remind you, as I want to remind myself every week, that these commandments are not obstacles to our happiness. They are not given to us to be a burden, but they are given to us to show us what it's like to live free, what it's like to be fully human, what it's like to live in the joy of our salvation. And it's so important as we look at today's commandment because our culture so often wars against it. Now, I have a lot of ground to cover this morning. And so I want to just read the preface to the Ten Commandments and then read the Seventh Commandment. So we're going to read Exodus 20, verse 1 and 2, to set the context of the Ten Commandments. And then we're going to skip down to verse 14, which is the Seventh Commandment. Exodus 20, verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Now skip down to verse 14, which is the seventh commandment. You shall not commit adultery. Let's pray. Lord, as we look into your word today, we are reminded that you are holy, that you are perfect, that you are good, and that we are not. And so, God, pray today that you would redeem our sexuality, that it would be glorifying to you and enjoyable to us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. When I was in college, one of my good friends, his name was Tim Allen. He's not the Tim Allen, but his name was Tim Allen. And he was the son of a PCA pastor, which is our denomination. And so he grew up in a conservative, Bible-believing, Jesus-loving home. And I remember one uh, year at the end of the, the spring semester, I was walking with Tim through the quad. And I said to Tim, your sister's getting married this summer, right? And he said, yeah, in about a month. And I said, isn't it weird to think that in less than or in a little over a month, your sister is going to be having sex. We are very close friends, so I could say things like that. I go, isn't that awkward to think? Isn't that strange to think? I mean, doesn't it feel kind of, ugh? And I can't forget Tim's response. Tim, almost jumping out of his skin, said to me, no, Dan, no. Sex is such a good thing. It's such a great gift from God. I hope that my sister and her husband are having lots of sex because if they aren't, there is a serious problem. I could even imagine my friend Tim praying for his sister's sex life. And this comes from a kid that came from a Jesus-loving, Bible-believing home. You see, I had a view of sexuality that I thought was biblical, but isn't. My view of sexuality was that it was something that was dirty. I even remember as a kid telling someone that it was a necessary evil. Have you ever heard that? Anyone? No one wants to raise their hand today. All right. Everyone feels awkward. But my friend Tim, he had the biblical understanding of sexuality. He had the right understanding of sexuality. That sex is not a bad thing, but it is a glorious thing. 
And so when we come to this commandment, do not commit adultery. And we'll see the expanse of it because it is wide reaching, much further than we know when we might think. God does not give us this command because sex is a bad thing. But because sex is a great thing. It's a glorious thing. And he wants us to enjoy in the way that we were created to. And so as we look at this topic of sexuality, I actually want to walk through the history of sex. Kind of like you've seen the history of dance. This is the history of sex. And I want to look at it from a biblical perspective. And the Bible has four major stories within the greater story. And the story goes like this, creation, fall, redemption, and it's called consummation or glory, heaven, the new heavens and new earth. That is the biblical story of redemption. So I want to look at sex within that context of the redemptive story. So the first thing I want to look at is the creation of sex. As we look a little bit here, we will see that sex is in the very first chapters of the Bible, even before the fall of mankind, even before sin and corruption comes into the world. It is a part of God's holy, perfect, and righteous creation. It is a good thing. And as we look at it through Scripture, we see there are three purposes, at least three. There are more, but I want to point out three purposes of sex. And the first is procreation. This may surprise you, but you, did you know that the very first words that God speaks to mankind, the very first command that God gives to Adam and Eve as recorded in the Bible, the very first command he gives to them is to have sex. So you got to start reading your Bible more. I mean, this is where God starts. Look in Genesis. Well, you don't have to look. I'll read it to you. Genesis 1, we read, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And then it says, God blessed them. And God said to them. And so these are the first words God speaks to man. He says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Now, these may not be the very first words God said, but they're the first words recorded in Scripture that God speaks to man. And the last time I checked, the only way to be fruitful and multiply is through sex. God decided not to bring babies into the world through storks or through kissing or through high fives. That would be horrible. All right, stop thinking about it. He, he decided to bring children into the world to populate the earth through sex. The second thing we see, not only is sex created for procreation, it's also created for permanence. Let me explain it this way. Genesis 2.24, the next chapter, again, before the fall of mankind, God says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. This is a picture of a husband leaving his mom and dad behind and connecting to his wife and making her his new family, to become one with her, not only uh, sexually, but also emotionally and, and spiritually and financially and socially to become one with this woman. And so God is commanding that they become one person, that they become permanented together, that they become cemented together. Some of you have heard the term consummate. We talk about consummating the marriage. It means to have the marriage completed by having sexual intercourse. And what this demonstrates is the oneness that we are supposed to have with our spouse, not only 
physically, but in all these other spheres of our life. And God gives us sex. He infuses sex with tremendous power in order to galvanize our relationship. Let me explain it like this. A few years ago, I bought a trailer. And I know, how does this relate, right? I bought a trailer, and the trailer didn't have an arm on the front of it. And the arm is kind of, or a leg, whatever you call it, but it's that thing that keeps the trailer from falling down. And I needed to put a leg on my trailer, and so I went to the store, and I, I bought a leg uh, to, to put on there, and I brought it home, and I'm reading the directions, and it says you have to weld it. Well, I have no idea how to weld something. And so I called up my good friend, Jim Brooke, and I had him come over, and he brought his welder and I think his solder. I think that's what you use, right? Is that right? And he started welding this leg onto my new trailer. And I remember after it was done saying to him, you know, what if, what if that solder breaks? What if the leg breaks off? And I remember him saying, the trailer's going to break before the solder breaks. You see, God created sex to connect us with our spouse. It is like welding us together or like super glue. It is meant to connect two souls together, to make them intertwined with one another. God has given it to us that sex might be an active covenant renewal of the vows that we've taken in marriage. We take these vows in marriage where we commit ourselves to one another. And then in the marriage bed, we are renewing that covenant time and time again, just like we do here on Sunday mornings with the Lord, as we've committed our life to him in Christ. And then we do it time and time again here on Sunday mornings. When you join together in the marriage bed, you're renewing that covenant once and again. And God uses that for permanence, to weld us together, to super glue us together, because he has infused sex with great power. The final thing I want to point out why God creates sex is for pleasure. Did you know that in both the male and female body, there is a cluster of nerves that is meant for no other reason than sexual pleasure? God created us that way because he wants us to have pleasure in our sexuality. Proverbs is a father talking to a son but also God talking to us. And it says this, let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. This is not a suggestion. It's a command. A lovely deer, a graceful doe, let her breast fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. This word intoxicate means to be drunk, to be enraptured, to be ravished by her love. As you go on to the next book of the Bible, the Song of Solomon, you see what is probably very surprising for most people that are new to the Bible. It is a whole book dedicated to the celebration of the pleasure and gift of sex. In fact, it's so racy that Hebrew boys under the age of 12 were not allowed to read it because they weren't considered adults yet. Let me just read you one portion from Songs of Solomon chapter 4. It says this, Your lips are like a scarlet thread, and your mouth is lovely. Your cheeks are like halves of a pomegranate behind your veil. Your neck is like the Tower of David, built in rows of stones. On it hang a thousand shields, all of them shields of warriors. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle that graze among the lilies. You have captivated my heart 
My sister, my bride, you have captivated my heart with one glance of your eyes, with one jewel of your necklace. How beautiful is your love, my sister, my bride. How much better is your love than wine and the fragrance of your oils than any spice. Your lips drip nectar, my bride. Honey and milk are under your tongue. The fragrance of your garment is like the fragrance of Lebanon. This is not the sequel to Fifty Shades of Grey. This is the inspired, holy, righteous word of God. God created sex for pleasure as well as for procreation and permanence and many other reasons. But it is a good thing. It is a glorious thing. And it is a gift from God. And so that is the creation of sex. It's created as a good thing. But of course, we know that sex and sexuality, although created good, has been perverted by sinful human beings. God's crown of creation was not grass. It wasn't monkeys. It wasn't the Grand Canyon. It wasn't mountains. It wasn't the sun, moon, and stars. God's crown of creation was man and woman. They bear the image of God. And so if we are not going to worship the Lord as our God, it makes complete sense that we would worship the next best thing, that we would worship the thing that reflects the glory of God. And so what we see in this sex-saturated society is that people, instead of worshiping the creator, worship the creation by worshiping people as sexual objects. That's why we need the seventh commandment. To remind us of not only the regulation of this command, of this gift of sex, but the direction of it, where it should be focused upon. Now, when we hear the phrase, do not commit adultery, we usually think of a married person having sex with someone that is not their spouse. And it is definitely applicable to that. I mean, that's, that's even current in today's news, isn't it? If you listen to the news at all, you've probably heard about this website, Ashley Madison. And the website's tagline is, quote, live short, have an affair. And it has over 37 million anonymous members. And it's all over the news because some hackers have hacked into it and they have threatened to expose the members unless the website shuts down. And they've already started to expose some of the high profile members, some of them claiming to be born-again Christians. And so now you see people that are scrambling to get their information removed because they know in their hearts that adultery is absolutely devastating to their marriage, to their family, and to their own soul. You see, what we typically see on TV is that sex outside of marriage is exciting and fun, right? That's what you see on TV, And that sex inside a marriage is boring and drudgery. But what God tells us and the testimony of real people verify is that sex outside of marriage, although it might be a forbidden pleasure for the night, brings absolute destruction in the morning. Now, as we look at the Old Testament and New Testament, We see that simply translating this word adultery as having an extramarital affair is a very narrow definition. 
as Moses expounds on the Ten Commandments throughout the rest of the Pentateuch, we see in Leviticus, there's this whole chapter devoted to sexual perversion that's forbidden. In Leviticus 18, it talks about how sex with your family, whether it be immediate or extended family, is forbidden by God. That you shouldn't have sex with your neighbor's wife. That you should not have sex with someone of the same gender. That you should not have sex with an animal. And so it talks about all of these ways that we commit adultery in our hearts and in our practices. Turning to the New Testament, we see a prohibition on fornication. Fornication is the word in Greek, porneia, and it simply means to have sexual relations with someone that is not your spouse. It matters not whether you are married or unmarried. It is considered adultery. And so as we look, what we see is that God is protecting the marriage bed, not just for those who are married, but for those that are unmarried. Right now, the norm, or from what I've heard from other people, they will tell me what is normal is to have lots of sex before marriage and have almost no sex after marriage. But God wants it the exact opposite. God wants us to be chaste in our singleness before we are married, not because he has a low view of sexuality, not because he thinks it is not powerful, but because he has a high view of sexuality, because he knows it is extremely powerful. I heard one commentator say he described it like this, that having sex with someone is like tape. When you put tape on a person, when you tear it off, there's a little less stickiness. And as many people as you tape it to, a little bit of that stickiness rubs away over time. And God knows that he created sex with power. And so he wants us to share it only with our spouse within the covenant committed relationship of marriage. 1 Corinthians 6 communicates the power of sex. It says this, you can read along on the screen. 1 Corinthians 6, God says, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the member of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Forget the word prostitute. You can substitute anything you want in there. You can say uh, co-worker, neighbor, friend, fiance, whatever it might be. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. What God is saying in this passage is how dare you think that sex is only physical pleasure? How dare you think that it is not the joining of souls. How dare you not know that it's something far more spiritual, far more intimate than the exchange of bodily fluids. What we need to remember and what our culture forgets all the time is that sex is never, ever neutral. It is never, ever neutral. Because God has infused it with power. Let me illustrate it like this. Sex is kind of like fire. If you put fire in the right context, whether it be your grill, your fire pit, your fireplace, it's a glorious thing. It's a great thing, right? You can cook your food. You can heat up your marshmallows. You can warm your house. But if you take that same fire full of power, and put it on your living room rug. It is a mark of destruction. As it eats away the home. Sex is like fire in that it is never neutral. 
And in the rightly committed covenant relationship, the right context, it brings glory and joy and wonder. But in the wrong context, it brings absolute destruction. And so adultery and fornication not only rob us, rob us of the best sex possible as God intended it, but it actually leaves behind a wake of destruction. Now Jesus takes this command, do not commit adultery, and explodes it and widens the application of it. In Matthew 5, 27, talking to men, Jesus says, You have heard it said that you you have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You know, just last week we talked about how Jesus takes the Ten Commandments and he targets the sin beneath the sin. Last week we focused on murder and we talked about how when Jesus said, if you hate a person in your heart, you're guilty of murder. He focuses on the sin beneath the sin. This week, as we look at adultery and he looks at the sin beneath the sin, he focuses on the lusts of our heart. Now, lust is not looking at someone and saying, oh, they are beautiful, they are attractive. But lust is taking that person, whether it be someone that you see in front of you, or it's someone that you see online, or it's someone that you have just as a figment of your imagination, and taking that person and using them for your own sexual enjoyment in your mind and in your heart. You know, back in January 2003, which was 12 years ago, when the internet was not nearly as available as it is today, it was recorded that pornography had grown into a $10 billion a year business, bigger than the NFL, NBA, and Major League Baseball combined. And it was also reported that nearly half of all hotel rooms ordered pornographic movies. This isn't just a male issue. It's a growing female issue as well. And it's lust. It's adultery. Now, maybe you're here today and you may say, I don't struggle with pornography. But do you struggle with lust in your heart at all? You know, there is more than just this physical lust that we deal with. There's also a relational lust, a romantic lust that so often captivates so many people. You know, I've heard it said by many different people that the female version of pornography is romance novels. In romance novels, what women get are this picture of this great and perfect and awesome guy. You know, his imperfections are quirky and they're cute. And as she's reading this romance novel, she looks next to her at her husband, who has mustard on his face, smells like a locker room, and she thinks, what did I get into? You know, I have seen both men and women engage in these emotional relationships in which there is this switch. And they start comparing that other person's strengths against their spouse's weakness. And what happens is they refuse to fight for their marriage. Instead, they continue to look for loopholes on why they can get out of their marriage. They refuse to fight for the reconciliation with their husband and their wife. And what they do is they're trying to plan ways to get away from their husband and wife. 
So instead of being obedient to God's word through these emotional affairs, through this emotional relational adultery, they end up running away from their spouse emotionally and then usually, but not always, physically. So lust, whether it is physical or emotional, it's never neutral and it always has consequences. And so Jesus goes on in that passage in Matthew 5 where he tells us that lust is adultery. And he says this, If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown in hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. And so what is Jesus telling us? Is he telling us to cut out our eyes, to cut off our hands? I mean, if this was something that all of us were obedient to, including yours truly, we would be in a whole lot of trouble, wouldn't we? We would be completely deformed. But what Jesus is telling us here, what he's reminding us of, is that sex and our sexuality and our lust is powerful. And that we must treat it seriously. And we must fight against this perversion with all of his strength working through us. And so just to recap, God created sex wonderful and glorious. But we have perverted it in our hearts. The good news is the story of redemption doesn't end there. We see not only the fall of our sexuality, but also the redemption of sex. Did you know that God is in the business of redeeming all things, including our sex life? And so the question is, how do we participate in God's work of redemption in our sexuality? Well, the first place we start is by repenting of our adultery. According to Jesus' definition of adultery, I think it's fair to say that all of us are adulterers. I know I am. And the remedy for sin is repentance. King David is a great example of this. If you know the story of King David, King David was a guy who was labeled as a man after God's own heart. He loved the Lord. He fought for the Lord. He did great things for the Lord. He wanted to build a house for the Lord, but wasn't able to. And yet King David was overcome by the lust of his heart. And he saw Bathsheba bathing. And he sent for her and they said to him, David, this is Uriah's wife. Like this is supposed to be a sign. It's someone else's wife. Keep your hands off. And he said, bring her to me. And he slept with her. And they ended up killing her husband to get rid of him. And so later, Nathan the prophet, with great courage and boldness, comes to the king of Israel, comes to David, and confronts him on his sin. David is overwhelmed by his guilt. And in his brokenness, he writes Psalm 51, which is a psalm of repentance for the adulterer. And this is what he says. This is what it says, Psalm 51.1. A psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Verse 7, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. 
Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Do you see what David is doing? David is understanding the weight of his sin, the weight of his adultery, and he is surrendering it to the Lord and confessing, God, I have not only sinned against Uriah and Bathsheba, but I have sinned most primarily against you, and I am guilty, and I need your forgiveness, and I need your grace, but I need you to cleanse my soul. The good news of the gospel is no matter what your sexual history is, no matter how dirty you feel, Jesus can wash you by his blood and he can make you whiter than snow through that crimson stain of his. You notice David doesn't only say, forgive me, but he also asks God, Lord, create in me a clean heart. See, repentance is far more than just sorrow over our sin and asking forgiveness for our sin. It's actually turning away from our sin and fighting against it with everything we have. In the New Testament, it tells us time and again that we shouldn't fight sexual immorality, but that we should flee from sexual immorality. And the reason is, is because you are not your own, because you have been bought with a price, and therefore we should glorify God with our body. You are not your own. You belong to God. And so you should flee sexual immorality. What does that look like practically? Well, when you go on just about any website, you could go to the weather website, and there are links to pictures. Flee from that. Close the site. You can go, I have, I have bunny ears. I don't have cable. I have normal, plain old TV. And there is plenty on there to lust after. What does it look like to flee sexual immorality? Change the channel. Turn off the TV. Go outside. Whatever you have to do, flee from sexual immorality because you are not your own. You were bought with a price. Maybe there is someone in your life who is not your spouse, and you get excited to see them. This might mean creating strict boundaries, cutting off that relationship in order to love them, to love yourself, to love your wife, but most of all, to love God. We are called to flee from sexual immorality. This is part of our repentance. The, the, the next way that we redeem our sexuality is not only by repenting of it, but actually by rejoicing in our sexuality. This is probably the biggest thing I learned this week. You know, if you're here today and you struggle with pornography or fornication or romance novels, or fantasies, or whatever it might be, if you struggle with those things, you might think to yourself, I struggle with sexual sin because I love sex too much, right? And God just kind of wired me that way. I just love sex too much, so I struggle with the sexual sin. But could it be the reason you struggle is not because you love sex too much, but because you love sex too little? You see, when we go and express our sexuality in ungodly ways, we are cheapening sex. We're actually robbing the glory of sex. Let me illustrate this way. Pretend your friend had a brand new iPhone. All the bells and whistles, all the cool things, 
and you're walking along and he's showing you your new, the new iPhone and how cool it is. And all of a sudden he notices on the boardwalk that there's this loose nail. And so he takes his iPhone over and he starts slamming it on the nail to hammer it back down in. And the screen is cracking. He keeps hammering and hammering. What are you going to do? You're going to be, stop. What are you doing? You're insane. You see, your friend's problem isn't that he values his iPhone too much and he thinks it can be used wherever it wants. His problem is that he values it too little and he's robbing it of the glory it's supposed to have. When you take God's given gift of sexuality and you use it in forms other than God intended it, it may not be because you love sex too much. It may be because you love it too little. And you pervert it. You cheapen it from its intended glory. Now, we see the creation of sex as a good thing. The fall of sex and our perversion of it. The redemption of sex through these things. But the third way is probably the most important. It's remembering your heavenly groom. In Isaiah 54, 5, the Lord says to his people, For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. Throughout Scripture, God uses marriage to communicate his relationship with his people. He wants to use the most intimate of relationships. And so he uses marriage and he says, you are my bride and I am your groom. But there is a horrible problem with this marriage with God. And the problem is the bride. The problem is us. That we so often chase after other gods. You see, we are not only physical adulterers and emotional adulterers, but we are also spiritual adulterers. We're spiritual adulterers whenever we chase our sexual sin, but we're also spiritual adulterers whenever we chase any other sin. We are denying God and we are running to other places to be our God, to be our Savior. That's why in Psalm 51, David could say, against you and you only have I sinned. Did he sin against Uriah? Yes. Did he sin against Bathsheba? Yes. But primarily against God, did he commit adultery? In Hosea, the prophet is giving this very strange calling in life, one that I'm guessing you won't ever get. The prophet Hosea is called by God, and God says this, Go take to yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. All of us have forsaken God. All of us have whored after other idols. All of us have cheated on God with false gods. And yet the good news is that the Lord and his great love for his bride did not divorce us. He didn't keep us at a distance. He didn't shame us. Ephesians 5 tells us, it says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. How did Christ love the church? He gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. You see, while we were spiritual whores, and that's what God says in the book of Hosea, Christ loves us so much that he went to the cross to die for us, that we might become his pure, spotless, beautiful bride. 
Ephesians 5 goes on to say, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. Our sexual relationship with our husband and our wife is to be a picture of the gospel, a picture of our union with God, our union with Christ. And so we must redeem our sexuality, knowing that our heavenly husband hates our spiritual adultery because he loves us so very much. And so why should you fight to redeem your sexuality? Because sex is to be a picture of the gospel. You know, the gospel says that you stand naked before God, naked spiritually, naked emotionally, naked mentally. And God sees all of your flaws. He sees the love handles. He sees the warts. He sees the hair. He sees all of the flaws. And yet God looks at you and he says, you are precious to me. I delight in you. You are my beloved. You see, the gospel gives us what we're looking for in sex. What we're looking for in sex is to be fully known, fully exposed, and yet fully loved. And that's what God gives us through his son, Jesus Christ, at the cross. I'm running out of time. Let me keep moving forward. Forgive me for going a little bit long today, but we don't talk about this much. The fourth thing, the fourth part of the story is the eternal future of sex. In other religions, heaven is a sexual paradise. They'll use terms like celestial sex, or they'll talk about a, they'll have multiple wives, a harem of women if you're a really good person. But the Bible has a very different view of sex in heaven and for all eternity. In Matthew 22, Jesus is responding to a question by the Pharisees. And Jesus says, for in the resurrection, talking about heaven, the new heavens, new earth for all eternity, says neither uh, people will neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And so if there is no marriage in heaven, there is a very, very good chance that there is no sex in heaven. And so you may hear that and try to compare it with everything that we've just said, that sex is a good gift from God. And when you hear that there is no sex in heaven, it might be very confusing. As in, if this thing is so glorious and so wonderful and so great on earth, why would God not also have it in heaven? And the reason why we are confused is not because we take too much pleasure in our sexuality, but because we do not take enough pleasure in heaven. See, the confusion happens Because if there is no sex in heaven, it isn't because sex isn't great here on earth, but it is small compared to the glory of heaven, compared to the enjoyment of heaven. Sex on earth is just an appetizer of the main course of heaven for all eternity. It is a shadow of the true intimacy and true delight that our souls long for. Let me illustrate this way. When my kids were smaller, we used to have this little kiddie pool. It was that hard plastic, you know, like two feet tall, about six feet wide, really hard to store anywhere in the winter. You know what I'm talking about? 
And we used to fill that thing up with hose water and we'd put in the sun to warm up and then we'd drag it in the shade. And our kids could sit in that little kiddie pool for hours and play. I mean, it was amazing. It was a little more than a puddle, but they loved it. Well, a few weeks ago on vacation, we went to Noah's Ark. And you know what? There were no little kiddie pools at Noah's Ark. And you know what? My kids weren't asking for it either. You might be here today single. A lot of you are single. And you might be thinking, great, I'm hearing this great thing about how great sex is, and yet I can't enjoy it. And now you're telling me it won't even be in heaven. Maybe you're even a little mad. Here's the thing. When we look back from heaven to our sexual relationship, as great and glorious and wonderful as they are on earth, we will look back at him and we will say, kiddie pool. Kiddie pool. That this great and glorious and awesome thing that we express on earth does not compare to the glory that awaits us in heaven. 1 Corinthians 2.9, which talks about the new covenant grace, but I think also points us forward to heaven, says this, No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no, no, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. You see, if there is no sex in heaven, it is not because it is so great, but it's because it will be so small compared to the glory and the enjoyment of our Savior, Jesus Christ, for all eternity. Let me end with this very quick illustration. I have a good friend who's actually here today, and I remember having a conversation several years ago, and he talked about how in his workplace, how none of the men there were actually sexually intimate with their wives. I was really confused by it. I'm like, what are, you, what are you talking about? And he said, well, they're addicted to pornography and they're chasing after other women and none of them are intimate with their wives because they're chasing after all these other sexual desires. You see, sex is fully enjoyed in the context of marriage because it is a monogamous covenant relationship in which you are fully known and fully loved and fully accepted. And it is the same way with our faith. Faith is not best when it is spread out across many gods. Faith is best. It is most enjoyable, most delighted in, most joyful when it is in a monogamous, covenantal, unconditional relationship with the lover of our souls. Christians should have the best sex lives because they know that God created sex as a great gift because they know the perversion of sex robs it of the glory it was intended for because they can redeem it through repentance and enjoyment of it and reminding us that it points us to our ultimate lover, Jesus Christ. And because we know that sex is just a foretaste of the glory that is to come for all eternity. Let's pray. Lord, there is much to pray for on this. God, I think of those who are here today who have had such bad sexual relationships in the past. And sex is such a dirty thing to them, Lord. God, I pray by your grace that you can heal their hearts, 
and redeem their view of your sex that you've given to us. Lord, I know there are some here, there are many here, who struggle with their sexuality. Lord, I pray that you would not give them a lower view of sex, but a higher view of sex, so high that they would not want to cheapen it or to rob it of its glory. Lord, we are all sexually perverse. And so, God, we need your grace to redeem us and to restore us. Lord, may in our sex lives, may we glorify you and enjoy you as we express it in the way that you have both commanded us to and created us to. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.